Welcome to the sermon podcast of Grace Presbyterian Church. For more information about our church, please visit our website, gracechurchlaunceston.com. Amen. I remember when I was a kid. So Mark, yeah, sorry, Mark chapter 12 from verse 13. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember poking around in my grandfather's garage. Um, who loves poking around in, in old people's houses? I do. <laughs> um, especially when you're a kid, it's like a magical place going into the garage um, and there are all the old tools, the musty smell of oil and the machines and grime and decades of dust and all that sort of thing. But I remember finding a relic from the past. It was an old hunting snare. Um, maybe you might remember what they're like. It was illegal to use them at that time. There was like a trap that you open up and you set, the, um, set it and you nail it into a tree on the ground and the wallaby comes along and it goes and it catches the animal. Uh, in our passage today, we find a snare has been set, a trap has been set, a cunning plan, if you like, not for hunting uh, wallaby, but for hunting Jesus. Uh, the enemies of Jesus are trying to trap him. And if you've noticed uh, that as we read that out, there's um, that word catch and trap repeated in there. Um, we've seen time and time again in Mark's Gospel that Jesus has been under attack. He's been uh, opposed in different ways. Um, people are trying to snare him. And you see this kind of thing still continues today. Jesus still faces those people who oppose him. Uh, there's opposition to Christ. Um, if you think about the people we know, the stories we hear, uh, we hear of the church under persecution. We hear of Christians being targeted um, simply because they name the name of Jesus. And even us here in old Tasmania at the bottom of the world, um, seemingly an idyllic land, um, we can feel that tension and pressure as well. Uh, even from laws that favour ideas that can be used to constrict the expression of faith um, publicly or squashing freedoms, um, freedom of speech to be able to speak about Jesus in various ways. Uh, and there's other examples, of course. But we must remember that if we feel any opposition to the church, if there's persecution of the church in this world today, it's not new. It's not new because it happened to Christ. Jesus said um, in another part of the Bible, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we need to take heart, he has overcome the world. Um, and that's what we see played out in this particular part of Mark's Gospel. Jesus walks into a trap, the snare is open, um, it looks uh, like a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But he not only escapes the trap, but he overturns the trap and completely baffles his opponents and his attackers leave amazed. Uh, it's, it's a genius move by Jesus. Because um, no matter the opposition, Jesus always comes out on top. He always comes out on top because we've got to know this about Jesus. And I think it gives us great hope and comfort for us as Christians today especially if we feel opposed as Christians. So two points today. Uh, number one is a trap set by words. And number two, Jesus escapes that trap and baffles his opponents. So we've got a couple of points. 
Um, the first point is a trap set by cunning words. You see, words matter. Words are important. How we speak matters and what we say. And in particular in this section here, we find that the motivation behind our words, the motivation, what drives our words, uh, is very important. So verse 13, it says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now look at what they say here, these Pharisees and Herodians. What do they say in verse 13 and 14? They say words that are absolutely true, don't they? Jesus is a man of integrity. Jesus isn't swayed by others. Um, he doesn't consider those higher up in society as more important as those who may not be considered as important by some. He listens to, other, to all sorts of people. He teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth, absolutely. But the thing is, you get a bit of a yuck feeling reading what they say here. Uh, these Pharisees and Herodians aren't there to compliment Jesus that he's doing a great job. They're there to trap him and catch him. They actually don't believe what they're saying, you see? They're speaking with a forked tongue, they're profuse in their praise of Jesus, they're buttering him up, and even though they're saying true things, they're not trying to encourage Jesus. It's flattery. That's the ancient sin of flattery played out. Uh, the difference between flattery and... There is a difference between flattery and encouragement, isn't there? Because it's all about the motive behind the thing that's said. For, the start, for starters, these Pharisees and Herodians, they didn't believe what they said. It's, it's lying. That, secondly, their words are a smokescreen for their attempt to destroy Jesus' reputation. Flattery, you see, masquerades as encouragement. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbour spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbour spreads a net for his feet. And this is um, a prime example of that. They're, catch, they're trying to trap Jesus with their words. Their purpose is deception. What can, we, what can we learn from this? You know, the way we talk matters, and in particular, our motivation for our words matter, matters. Uh, I think we know what flattery is. I'm probably sure that you know how to flatter someone. Um, for example, you might uh, want to get a dessert after a meal at home. And so what do you do? You, you make sure you pack away the dishes and you speak beautiful compliments to your mother and um, just so you don't miss out. Um, or you want to get that new position at work that's just opened up and what do you do? You take on the extra jobs and the responsibilities and make sure the people in charge, the, the managers know what you're doing and you speak great things about them um, just before the application is due to be submitted. Uh, we... The sin of flattery is in here, isn't it? We learn it from a young age. And we need to watch as Christians that our motives are, are not manipulative, um, that our words aren't there to manipulate someone else. Maybe we need to ask God for forgiveness today. Maybe you can identify some things in your life. 
sometimes when you have tried to get your way through your words. But on the other side of the coin, so to speak, we need to also uh, be aware that we can be trapped by cunning words. We can be trapped by cunning words. Our pride, the sin of pride in us and flattering words um, are very much hand in hand. Our pride loves flattering words. We love to be admired. We want to be wanted. Um, That's pride in us. And I think this is a cause of a great deal of problems in relationships in particular, and it can be in the form of a trap. So Proverbs, again, um, chapter 7, speaks of a young man being led as an ox to the slaughter with flattering words and smooth talk. And in Proverbs chapter 7, the young man is seduced by flattery. Flattery leads to a great deal of sexual sin. Uh, But, as Proverbs says, it's like an ox being led to their death, to the slaughter. So we need to watch out for flattery, that we aren't speaking that way to others, but also that we aren't falling into a trap. Keep watch over your heart and be aware that our pride loves to be flattered. As Christians, we need to be rather, on the other hand, um, putting on the fruit of the Spirit, watching how we speak, guarding our tongue. We need to be truthful people, people who speak the truth in love from a humble, humble position. We need to be honest in the way we talk. And when we speak, uh, we need to make it our aim not to get what we want from someone, but the aim to genuinely want the best for other people. Kind words from a, a good heart are wonderful. Kind words are wonderful and powerful. Encouragement. We are meant to encourage others. Um, but from a, a, from a heart that genuinely wants others to go well. Commending others is good. Our words to be out of love for our neighbour. And so as we come to a second point, Jesus, he escapes the trap. He escapes the trap and turns the tables. And so they leave amazed. So verse 14 again. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Should we or shouldn't we? It's a question, isn't it? Now there's this recent craze on social media about how often men think about the Roman Empire. Has anyone heard of that? Yes? No? Yep. Uh, Women ask the men in their life how often they thought about the Roman Empire and how much to their surprise and and shock that that the Roman Empire comes up several times a day, maybe, or month. Um, But but what's more interesting is that these, these people in this story thought about the Roman Empire all the time. They were actually living in the Roman Empire Um, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They, it occupied their brain all the time. The Pharisees, importantly for our passage today, they wanted the throne of David to be restored. They wanted King David's line, Israel's kingly line, back on the throne. And the other group, the Herodians, um, there's not much recorded about what they actually stood for, but they were probably loyal to King Herod, and that royal dynasty. And what the Herodians and the Pharisees had in common is they wanted political independence for the Jewish people. They didn't like the Roman Empire. They didn't like it. 
They didn't like that they were a subjugated people. These Romans were in their land ruling them and they did not like it at all. They didn't like the poll tax, this tax they had to pay to the Roman Empire for the privilege of being occupied. It would grate against their national identity as Jews. This tax was a reminder they were in Roman-occupied territory. The tax reminded them they were... um, they had overlords. And so they come to Jesus with a cunning plan. They come to catch Jesus out, either to get him to say something that would land Jesus in trouble with the Romans, or to say that something, something that would give them evidence uh, that they needed to haul him before the Roman authorities and say this man has committed treason and get Jesus out of the way. Or if Jesus says... Um, don't pay, um, pay your taxes, it would put Jesus at odds with every single Jew around him who didn't like the Romans. So it's a, it's a perfect trap. Lose-lose situation for Jesus. Say, don't, don't pay your tax in trouble with the Romans. Pay your tax in trouble with the Jews. Lose-lose, Jesus. But of course it doesn't go that way at all. So verse 15, Jesus responds, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. That word for trap, verse 15, is the same word that means test. Why are you trying to test me? And this is an important word in Mark's gospel. It it was first spoken um, to the devil in chapter 1, to Satan. The evil one was testing Jesus in the wilderness. And like Satan had done earlier, he continues to test, continues to attack continues to try to catch Jesus, and this time through these Herodians and Pharisees. There's always been opposition to Jesus, and it has a devilish origin in the Gospels and continues today. We're meant to see this as Satan trying to thwart Jesus here. So verse 15 says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Now, I don't have a denarius with me. I'd love to get one, um, but I have a 10 cent, 10 cent coin. Um, can you look at, do you want to look at the back of the coin for me? What's on the back? Can you tell me? A person. Do you know who it is? Does anyone know who's on the back? The queen, yes, that's right. The image on the coin, the picture on the coin indicates who is in charge of the money. Uh, So can I have the coin back? Thank you. (sighs) This is, it's my pocket money for the week. No, Um, uh, 10 cent, uh, yes, there's Queen Elizabeth on the back there. And um, it is, it it actually indicates who this this, uh, currency really belongs to. We're just borrowing it from the Queen. Um, And that's really what Jesus is saying in this passage here. Whose face is on the coin, on this denarius? Whose face? Caesar's, the Roman Emperor. And to make matters worse for the Jews, uh, the inscription on the denarius read this, Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augustus, Phyllis Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin it says, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. They didn't like the tax, not only because it said Rome was in charge, 
but because the writing on the coin uh, was blasphemy. It says Caesar is divine and he's a high priest of the gods. Caesar is divine and it's a high priest. It's blasphemy. So verse 17, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He's the head of state. You Pharisees, Herodians, you guys might not like Caesar. And they didn't. You might not like Romans, the Romans. And yet Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. It's a revolutionary idea. It's a revolutionary idea. Jesus understands the the state, the authority of the state. That's what he teaches here. And he's saying loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to God aren't necessarily in conflict. You can obey human authorities, you can obey Caesar, and at the same time still obey God. Uh, We read from 1 Peter about, uh, about this before, but also in Romans it says, Romans 13, 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's doesn't mean that human beings or governments are independent from God's rule and God's sovereign authority. You can obey Caesar and you can obey God. You can pay your tax and also obey God. So Caesar's image is on the coin. Even if you don't like he's in charge, pay your tax. That's, that's the first part of the sentence Jesus says. And this principle, of course, applies wider than just paying tax. It's about how we honour authorities over us. I imagine this would have been a very important and crucial verse for the early church under Rome. I reckon it's very important today. It would have been a very, very challenging verse, an important verse for many Christians in the, under the Roman Empire. The question is, how do you obey governments when the laws they set and the governments aren't favourable towards you. That's, that's what was going on back then and it's still common across the history of the church and today. It is a challenge to remain as a good citizen while facing pressure from the government, especially when facing persecution and hardship from that government. This was the case in the early church in the 2nd to 4th centuries AD in particular. Problems arose when the emperors, the Caesars, decided to be declared as divine. They were viewed as gods. So to be a loyal Roman citizen, you needed to sacrifice and pay homage to the emperor. This was known as the imperial cult or emperor worship. And it was a way of declaring loyalty to Rome. It was how you showed you were a loyal citizen and not a supporter of the enemies of Rome. And this practice of paying homage to the emperor made its way into the trade guilds, the army and other aspects of normal life in in that time where Christians lived and worked. During the reign of the emperor Diocletian, the imperial cult was taken to another level. Those who didn't pay homage to the emperor were arrested for treason. Um, Because as Christians, our allegiance is ultimately with God. We are not to worship other gods. That's idolatry. We worship the one true God. 
And so many during that time, many believers in Jesus respectfully said, no, we are not going to worship the, and pay homage to the emperor. We're not going to offer that sacrifice. And the authorities in some areas used this situation to bring a great persecution against the church. Many Christians during that time refused to compromise and were executed for their faith in all matter of cruel ways. You know the saying, thrown to the lions? That was literally what happened to many Christians. When authorities go bad, and they do because they're human, they're sinful, like it did under Diocletian, and what it's like in the number of places around the world today, even in Australia, we live with flawed governments. When humans are in charge, there is sin, there's trouble and mess. It is a challenge to consider what it means to give to Caesar what he Caesar's. It is hard. And we should pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who live in places where the government or the police are hostile to Christianity. But Jesus says we owe obedience. He says we owe obedience to human authorities as far as possible. It's our Christian duty. You see, a Christian uh, can serve God and obey the law, even under an oppressive regime. A Christian can serve God and do what your manager at work says, even while you could do their job better than they could. A Christian can serve God and honour their parents, even while their parents aren't great. God is owed our highest allegiance. And the way we do that oftentimes is by honouring the authorities he has set in place over us. But at the same time, we need to realise that God requires total allegiance. All in. 100% allegiance. Because there are times when Caesar and God are pulling in opposite directions. There are times in the scriptures when this is the case. I think about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus uh, chapter 1, who hid the children, the baby boys, from, um, which was against the order of the king of Egypt. They hid the baby boys so they wouldn't be killed. It says in Exodus 1, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Or Daniel the book of Daniel and his friends, they stood up to the king of Babylon and did not bow and worship an idol. Or Peter in the book of Acts, he was told to stop preaching, Peter, and he says, we must obey God rather than men. Our allegiance is to God. And when human authority does something, says something or acts to tell us to do something in a, which is contrary to God's word and what God says, then we say, respectfully, no, we're going to obey God. So back to verse 17. Uh, imagine the Herodians and the Pharisees, um, they would have been thinking halfway through that phrase, we've got him. Yes. <laughs> He's just said, pay your Roman tax. No one's going to like Jesus after that. Um, everyone's going to hate him. The trap is shut. The snare is closing. But then the second half of the sentence sinks in. It sinks in and they're totally blown away. Jesus has not only got out, gotten out of their trap, but he's turned the tables on them. What's going on here? He knew their hypocrisy, you see. He knew they were hypocrites. He knew their hearts. He reveals what they think about Caesar. They didn't want to pay tax. But more importantly, he knows what they think about God. 
You see, we, according to Scripture, are to give back to God what belongs to God. We are to give back to God what belongs to God. Why? Why do we give back to God what belongs to God? What actually belongs to God? What belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. You see? We belong to God. You belong to God. This world belongs to God. Now, you might think that's a bit ridiculous, or you might recoil at that idea, but the truth is that God is our creator. He's the one who made this world. He's our maker. And we and everything else belongs to him. Not only that, we're in his image. Jesus says, look at the coin, there's an image on that coin, but if you look around this world, the image of God is everywhere. Right? We're in his image. We belong to him. God is not a cruel master. He's not a cruel master. God owns by giving. God created us, he made us. This universe didn't magically appear out of nowhere. He didn't have to make us. But we are his, we're his creation. He did it anyway, out of love. So we belong to him. He's our creator. We owe him everything. Jesus says, the more important question is, O Herodians and Pharisees, whether you're giving to God what belongs to God. Are you living for God? Are you giving back to him your life? And the answer is no, they're not doing that. They were hypocrites. Jesus knew that. They were hypocrites. They knew it too. And so they're amazed, verse 17, they were amazed at him. You see, those that plan things against Christ, those who attack his people, those that plot against God and his ways will end up losing. They'll, they'll stand amazed before Jesus. They might seem like they're gaining ground against Christ and his church, but God wins. And it's utterly foolish to think we can thwart God's plans or take the Messiah off the throne. In the end, Jesus will get all the glory. And so the question is for us as we wrap up, are we giving to God what belongs to God? Are we giving back to him what belongs to him? That's what he asked those people there that day. And he's asking us that same question. Are we all in with Jesus? Is everything on the table? Everything belongs to him anyway, but are we trying to keep some back for me? Does God have my everything? Does he, does he have my plans and my time, my energy? Does he have my love? Think about Jesus. Think about Christ. Jesus embodies this very idea of giving. He lived this out. He gave himself to God at a far greater level than any one of us can or do. When Jesus holds up that denarius and says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he was going all in. He knew the stakes and yet he gave himself wholeheartedly to the will of his father and that would lead him to be crucified by the Roman authorities, by Caesar's men. Jesus willingly gave people, uh, gave himself more than we can imagine for us so that we might belong to God not only as his creations but as new creations, as saved and redeemed people. God gave the gift of his only begotten son because that's what God is like. He's a God who gives and gives and gives.
because he loves us. And so, are we giving back to him? Are you going to give to God what belongs to him? Yourself, your life, is everything on the table? Keep nothing back. It might seem like a risk, but with God, it's, it's nothing at all.